one of the reasons why I think it was what was eye opening for me was that it wasn't then just requiring the roaster to pay more money. Sometimes there was other ways we could bring value to the system by just opening up the circle to a more connectedness. And I think that's kind of at the core of what you'll see in the fifth wave. We're all connected in ways, but the human connectedness is really what's going to win out. Hi, and welcome to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. In this episode, we'll be exploring what is the fifth wave and what is its significance to coffee at origin. We'll look at the parallels between our Western, modern coffee-consuming world. In particular, we'll cover important areas such as people, processes, service standards, training, technology, and of course, sustainability. We're going to be exploring this topic by speaking with David Griswold, a leading figure in the world of specialty coffee, founder of Sustainable Harvest, the world's first ever B Corp coffee firm and pioneer of relationship coffee. And if that's not enough, the coffee his sources can even be tasted in the world famous ethical ice cream company, Ben & Jerry's. Well, David, you've had a very long career in coffee. To get started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your career and especially why did you focus on coffee at origin? Like many people in coffee, I sort of fell into a career that I never really expected. I was planning to go to business school right about the time that the Berlin Wall was falling and the International Coffee Agreement was coming apart. And I decided I would, before I went to business school, I would go down to Mexico and help some coffee farmers who were trying to form a national organization. And it was a really interesting time in coffee back then because not only was the market kind of collapsing for smallholder farmers in Mexico and many other parts of the world, but also um, it was a time of liberalization. So the kind of key ways that farmers had been taken care of by the state or by the government in Mexico was all disappearing rapidly. So I was there as a volunteer working in Mexico City. And I had this moment, Jeff, where um, it kind of, uh, a farmer asked a question that would basically change my life. And a farmer had come down with some coffee beans and had taken a seven hour bus ride from Northern Mexico near um, an area where coffee was grown, Nayarit, and had taken a bus all the way into Mexico City to come to this co-op national organization that was staffed by just a few volunteers, mostly Mexicans, and this young gringo, myself. And he came in with the, walked into the office, put a bag of parchment on the desk and said, I hear you are here to help us sell our beans. And I'd only been in coffee for you know a couple of months. There was no internet. Um, I was just reading books on how to export coffee. But as this gentleman and I sat and spoke about where he came from, the families back at the village who were all waiting for him to come back with an answer of how they would sell the beans for their primary cash income, and all the lives that depended on this coffee sale, I looked at the beans there in parchment and the golden, you know, cover that uh, that peanut-like shell that coffee covers the coffee bean, the coffee seed, and realized he couldn't send it like that to a broker in New York. And at that point, I realized, um, even though he'd asked me, how can I help him sell his coffee beans? I realized that he needed to know how to sell his own village's coffee beans. And I thought, how does he connect to this market? Because there really wasn't a playbook. Now there was no more education or marketing support from the government. And they were just in an economic free-for-all to try to figure out who they were selling to, what the demands of that market in the North were. And so I began my story by just taking those beans and taking them up to New York and had my first meeting on Wall Street and I brought in a 
Kodak carousel projector and showed pictures of a farm. And these traders looked at me like I was, I'd landed from Mars. Like they bought coffee on a transactional physical basis based on, uh, you know, the screen size of coffee, not where it came from or the farmers who grew it. And, um, and interestingly enough, it didn't go very well there. But uh, I knew a couple guys who were making ice cream by my previous work up in Vermont, guys named Ben and Jerry. So I took my beans up there and asked them, would you be interested in this? And they didn't say yes, but they also didn't say no. They just sort of said, how do we source our coffee? And could we do it where we know the farmers more? And uh, that story has a happy en ending because the, um, the flavor in Ben and Jerry's coffee ice cream now has been coming from Mexico since the early 1990s. Wow, what a story. Yeah, I, I think it was one of those things where when, whenever you're in business, you need somebody to say, I don't think you're crazy. And then you just keep going if you really want to believe in something. I'm really looking forward to exploring that. Before we get there, I was wondering if you could paint a picture of what the industry looked like when you first started in coffee. I'd love to hear the early journey of sustainable harvest. Yeah. So what the industry was like back in the early 1990s was a very transactional, very commodity-based um, business. It was what would be coming off of maybe the first wave of roasters, which was, as we know, coffee that was um, used as fuel to get up. It wasn't really about a place-based or farmer-based model. And uh, I remember early, about mid-1990s is another sort of moment of aha, when I took a group of farmers up to one of the very first specialty coffee shows. And we drove up through California all the way to Seattle. And en route, we stopped and visited some roasters. And I presented the farmers from Mexico. And I thought, this is great. This is how coffee should be done, that it's based on relational, not transactional. But I realized when the, the roaster said, listen, I get all my coffee beans from a broker who I go fishing with, and that's all I need to know about the source of my beans. Well, that's a far cry from where we are today now, where people really want to know where coffee comes from. And so as I stayed in coffee and, and then the second wave, uh, you know, where it was more based on brands and, and uh, Starbucks was building and then living in Portland, Oregon, I moved up to Portland from the Bay Area and early started with people that were all the, the direct trade um, crowd that started in coffee who really wanted to know where their beans were coming. And so I've had this opportunity to then go through the fourth wave where it was more about science and how coffee's processed and participate in that. Um, as people started to grade coffees and use the, use the CQI, the Q grading system that we're all familiar with of giving a point score to coffee. Boy, when I started out, as you were asking, people didn't know how to even describe what they were looking for except in sort of you know, oblique terms. Um, and there was no real standard for a farmer to know. And I remember sometimes early on in my career of sustainable harvest, having uh, an appointment at the National Coffee uh, Group. It, this one was in Guatemala. And um, having all the farmers sort of standing outside the glass room laboratory where we were tasting the coffee, not having any idea about what they were actually shipping. And so it became really clear to me that some of the principles of what I would later you know, create into what is a business model called relationship coffee, that farmers needed, farmers and farmer leaders needed to be on the same level in terms of their knowledge of what they were selling and who they were selling to. And so all through these stages of looking at coffee as it's evolved, the one thing that I've tried to hold true to is let's make sure the producers are also, also at the table with us, right there alongside with us, because if we do that, we can really scale 
the excellence in coffee if the people who grow it actually know what we're looking for. So that was a little bit of what the industry was like through the, the decades that I've been in coffee. Well, that sounds like a great title for this episode, bringing producers to the table. Yeah, I think it is absolutely the essential element. It wasn't enough even as I went through with the third wave traders, uh, roasters, and we would travel together, it wasn't enough for people from the north to go down and find incredible beans and then bring those back and tell their customers about it. I was always wanting to make sure that the farmers knew who they were selling to. And as an intermediary, which Sustainable Harvest is a green coffee trading company, we needed to be more of an integrator or a connector because I saw the connectedness of coffee that would be what sustains a supply chain um, rather than just, you know, such a fascination with just the bean, but not um, thinking about how that person who grows the bean really needs to stay tethered to the the people who are buying it. And so that's been our our goal at every step. And we've created some events uh, such as Let's Talk Coffee, which is now in its 17th year of bringing the entire supply chain's that we work with together so that they can have these face-to-face conversations. And that's been really essential because it's, um, it is based on people, place, and um, quality, but they, it's not transactional in nature. Can you tell us a little bit more about where Sustainable Harvest is today? You've no doubt done a lot of evolving over the past 20 years. Yeah, so it, Sustainable Harvest now is, a, is reaching its 25th anniversary as a green independent coffee trading company. Um, We source coffee from Africa, Latin America, and Asia. We sell all over the world. Um, We have now, we took over an entity that was well known for ethical trading in the UK called Twin Trading when it was um, on hard times and and it looked like a lot of uh, suppliers and customers were gonna lose a really core business and Sustainable Harvest sort of felt like Twin was its um, its twin in terms of ethical trading in the, in the U.S., right? Uh, it did it in the U.K. So now we have operations in London, and that gives us a um, connection to Europe. So that's the mechanics of, you know, we import coffee from around the world. Uh, there's about 70,000 farmers uh, in our network that we, can, um, that we can point to, that we track, that we know. Um, and we bring the coffees up and sell them to roasters, so the kinds of brands that people are familiar with would be like Kirk Dr. Pepper or Pete's Coffee, Phil's, um, those are, and then the number of tailors over in the UK, um, Veneziano in Australia, and there's many, many other roasters that we sell to. So we're kind of providing relationship coffees uh, to customers who are looking for those deep connections. So you're working with some really, really big brands across the world now. There's some formidable accounts there. Yeah, I think it's important for us. I've always to 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 move volumes of of coffee as well as stay with the quality roasters. I don't think you have to choose one or the other. At least we didn't feel that was necessary. We're very big on certified coffees, especially organic and fair trade. They make up a lot of the coffees that we offer. And for a couple of important reasons, one with a name like Sustainable Harvest, we do care deeply about the environment and that coffee um is restorative and regenerative in how it's grown. We also believed that we needed to go with certifications that at least put a floor price to farmers um, because for most of the 25 years that I've been in coffee, the cost, the the C price of coffee has been lower than the cost of many of the farmers um, 
production costs. And that's because of a lot of reasons that I'm sure your podcast listeners know that there's a tremendous amount of coffee that comes out of uh, places like Brazil or Vietnam where there are lower costs of production and coffee can be sustainable at a lower price point. But that doesn't do much for the hand picking that's happening in Central America or Colombia or many other places. So I've always really, um, I've been agnostic about certifications, but I have been really solid on farmers need to be paid enough that they can find a way to continue harvesting into the next season. And I, and I just don't want to do business where I'm not being true to those kinds of values. Now, this concept of fifth wave, the idea of scaling boutique, it's something that we help develop at Allegra. But I'd like to know from your perspective, what fifth wave means to you? Well, I think I'm in agreement with you on that there is a new wave happening in coffee. And I think it is about um, creating a much better product. And I think that's seen in a very holistic way. It's not just how much better can we make the bean or how much better can we brew it. But can we go full circle back to making sure that we have connectedness and empathy with those people who are growing it. I believe you can have relationships in every single coffee that's sold. I think that sometimes big big companies have said, we can't keep track of all the coffees because it all gets mixed and matched in, in different places. And it's just not the way our traders bring out coffee. But I believe technology allows us to do that. And it's simply a will of making sure that you're as engaged with developing the human relationships between the coffees, because they all come from farmers, why can't you also just make sure that they're connected to where their coffees are sold and and continue that relationship? So what does Fifth Wave do for us? Well, the technology of the internet, the connectedness of everything, uh, the fact that videos and Instagram are all sort of ubiquitous throughout the world means that we're going to see a lot of excellence happening in places that are not just maybe in our backyard in Portland or New York or London, but we're going to see some really exciting things happen as people open up what we would see as third wave or fifth wave coffee shops, connecting back to uh, at origin in producing countries. And I see this in Mexico, Colombia, places in Java, um, where you start to see now cafes and people roasting coffees that are nationally national pride symbols, right? In Mexico, what coffees that when I went up in 1990 were all sort of mixed um, now as, you know, maybe they were called prime washed because it was just a, a, a physical characteristic of the bean. Now people look at not just that they're from Veracruz, Oaxaca, or Chiapas, but also which farm groups within that. And that's in a Mexico City cafe um, with a world-class barista. I think that's kind of the excitement that I have when I look at Fifth Wave is that it's going to explode in scale the same way that you've been describing it, but maybe in places we weren't quite expecting. So obviously a lot happens from the moment the farmer plants a seed and there are many, many layers to the operations at Origin. Could you give us a simplified version of the layers that your business has to deal with and what relevance they have to business practices at Origin? Yeah, it's... It's an interesting product because coffee is a pretty complex product, and there's a lot of ways that the coffee bean can get damaged in its long life cycle from flowering all the way to the cup uh, that you may you may buy at, from a barista. Um, I think the important thing for people to realize is that being in the world of coffee allows you to touch on so many different elements of being a Renaissance person, agronomy, history, politics, economy, 
there's just so much going on with, with coffee just when you think about where is it grown, who grows it, and how is it produced. And at a very meta level from a, a pure trader perspective, what people who buy coffee, who are roasters and retailers, what they want to know principally is, where's my coffee? How much does it cost? What does it taste like? And, and because they just kind of want to know those basic things. But when you look back at all of the stages for what does it taste like, then that branches down to a lot of things that you need to know if you have uh, offices at Origin, which is what we do. We had our first office in Mexico in 2002 and then put one in, in Peru in 2004 and 2008 in Colombia. And we put local people who were expert tasters, Q graders, who would then connect with the farmer groups that we would uh, get supply from. And, you know, primarily because I was always interested in working with smallholders, the the typical kind of entity that I work with is a cooperative, which I see as if it's a well-run cooperative, and we have had 25 years to sort of sort and sift who are the good cooperatives to work with, then that's like a, that that is not like, that is a social enterprise function for that community. Because in addition to just milling the farmer's beans, they provide a whole host of services that are really important for that community. It's where uh, services like healthcare comes through that, or when there's a hurricane, that's where the government can reach more people, or certifications can sort of use that as the central point. Because these independent farmers who are atomized throughout the hills, if they are by themselves, they can't really engage in the coffee industry, right? Because it's done at such volumes. A container of coffee holds 37,500 pounds of coffee. Um, a single farmer may only produce three or four maybe 10 bags, depending on which country you're looking at, of those in a particular container. So thinking about um, all of these steps, so you've got the harvesting, you've got the processing, and I think people are on your listening to your podcast are probably fairly familiar that there's lots of different ways to process and ferment and, and dry the bean, and then milling it, whether it's blended with other beans or whether it's micro-lotted, and then you have to bring it up and, and ship it. Right? You have to ship it from all these different places and um, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of containers that are on the water at any one point for us are moving coffee um, to various places. And um, so you need a logistics team. You need a tremendous amount of financing because you have to pay the farmers and the co-ops cash against documents. But when you bring the coffee up, you may not get paid as fast. And so, you know, you're basically a bank in the middle. That's one of the big functions of a trader is to be a bank. And why a lot of smaller traders sometimes struggle as they sort of go from very small working out of their home to trying to really move a lot of volume. I certainly, I don't know sometimes how I got through it to, uh, to go to, to scale because without big lines of credit, um, you can't be efficient on the logistics part. And um, that's just, it's probably kind of a little bit insider stuff because logistics doesn't seem very interesting. But when you, when you look at it, uh, everybody's looking for the lowest cost shipping, whether you're buying from Amazon or, or wherever you're buying, and that's no different in coffee. Then once you bring it up, you have to find customers for it. And then what we try to do is make sure those customers are really connected to the communities and the people who they're buying coffee from. And then, if, as I mentioned, vice versa, that those roasters are also known by the, the co-ops and the people who are working in those co-ops so that that kind of deep connectivity about what the market trends are for this coffee, because people should know who they're selling into. Every roaster that I've mentioned 
has a different definition of quality in quotes, right? And so there is no one quality. There may be a Q score that you say this needs to be 84 and above. But if you look at the actual flavor profiles that people are looking for from a particular or origin, it's a little more like independent fingerprints or flavor parts. Every coffee is that way. So you really have to dial that in. And we actually you know, have, have built some tools to do that in a digital way. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more about those digital tools. But before we do, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about the main challenges at Origin. What prevents the application of what we would consider smart and fair business practices in line with our fifth wave thinking? Well, I think that people are worried about how coffee is produced. We have to be honest with ourselves as, as an industry. Coffee has been a broken industry for many years. It's not sustainable by any stretch when you look at at the pricing and what farmers live on. And if you read any of the reports, it you see that people today are making half in real terms what their fathers or grandfathers or grandmothers made in coffee. So from those days in the late 80s, when that ICA collapsed, the International Coffee Agreement collapsed, where prices had been fairly set by, by, the, um, by that agreement, the low, low prices that we faced over the last 25 years with just occasional spikes that farmers rarely take advantage of because it doesn't happen usually when their harvest is being sold. That has been, that, that's the nature of the coffee industry that we have to face head on. And so, so low prices then result in bad business practices on the side of people who are not getting paid well for what they're doing. And that may mean that um, people can't send their kids to, um, to school. So then they need to have them at the farm. And in some cases, there's child labor issues that happen at some of the bigger farms. And that's all been documented. And we see those things happening. And so brands and retailers want to have a, a safe way to bring a product in that they don't, they're trying to make sure that the risk is mitigated of, um, of bad practices. But what is often not in the conversation is, have we had a conversation with these farmers about what is the living income um, where they can make a living and have a little profit? Are we reaching that on this versus what is the world market price telling us the price could be? And, and that's one of the big challenges to have those kinds of tough conversations because there's a lot of coffee that you can, um, you can get from, from the industry that will just turn a blind eye to, is it really sustainable? Are these people going to be staying in coffee or moving on? So I've mentioned child labor is, is one that uh, low prices or just not um, taking care of a farm in a way that it should be. Climate change, obviously one of the biggest issues right now in coffee. We're seeing unusual patterns of weather in every single country. And coffee is is sort of the canary in the coal mine when it comes to diseases, the, um, the kinds of diseases of coffee leaf rust, you know, went through Central America. That's the coffee berry borer disease. Um, also is something that was, you know, hitting coffee when farmers don't have enough money to sort of pick all their beans and, and they leave them on the trees. All these sort of diseases that happen um, in coffee are partly climate and um, they're, they're 
they create migration patterns. You know, a lot of the migration that we saw um, in the last 10 years to the U.S. are from Honduras and Guatemalan, and many of them are coffee-growing countries. And, and here in Portland, Oregon, when I um, often will speak with Latinos that are undocumented who are maybe working as uh, construction workers, and I, I've had experiences where I've asked where they're from, and they're from a, a growing community in Central America where maybe I've been. And I really do believe that there's a, de- a direct connection between coffee prices and um, the economic stability of, of this whole sec- this whole region. And um, I think it's, it's something that we have to face instead of um, simply push down the risk of compliance and regulation through certification systems. I mean, that's all important to know what are we buying, but we also have to answer those hard questions. Are, are you making enough money to grow that coffee for me next year at the same price, at the same quality that my customers are coming accustomed to? And so that happens through a relationship model. Yeah, well, let's dive into this relationship model that you've been touching on. It seems like this is one of the solutions to this long-standing problem within the coffee industry. Yeah, well, my hope is that the business approach that we've honed for almost 30 years called relationship coffee model could be a, you know, the primary I don't know, sourcing paradigm for the fifth wave coffee. And, and here's why. I think relationship coffee is based on a few key elements in coffee trading that are very valuable, but not often found. Probably the most valuable thing in commodity trading is trust. It's really knowing who you're working with and where things, where things are coming from. And trust gets created through transparency. Very, very high levels of transparency that happen when you put buyer and seller together, even though you're the intermediary. And so in the relationship coffee model, we have to be so open about the business of coffee, the playbook of coffee, the pricing of coffee, so that a conversation can happen between the grower leader and the roaster. And that is a that was seen as a business liability when I first started. You know, having that much transparency, I was told by by business school students and by others, you're going to, that's a liability. You can't you can't tell people where you're getting the coffee and what you're paying and, and be completely open about pricing. But I I had to differ. I felt like it was going to be more valuable if we could get people together and talking about all the other items about the coffee trade that they were trying to conduct together, if we could just get price to be something we all agreed on. And uh, people people have come around to our model to, to expect, you know, transparent pricing, knowing what the growers are getting paid, um, having a direct relationship with the with the growers and the growers, you know, WhatsApping and Instagramming their customers, that provides so much more efficiency that you know the coffee trade can can survive if you are not an unnecessary intermediary, and that's the real key word. Like an unnecessary middleman is going to get thrown out of the chain, but if you can still be a connector, provide more tools and um, more value to the roaster and to the growers, you build up loyalty that builds that trust and the transparency works. So I was able to turn a liability into an asset. So the way that I create a relationship coffee model, um, it's also, it's really trying to see 
who are we going to work with? You know, getting a sense of the, the people. We do a diagnostic at the farm. We get to know the people that want to sell us the coffee. And um, we have a lot of a lot of questions in our diagnostic. This is on top of a fair trade or a organic certification. We have all these questions that we know our customers are going to want answered. And we also want to know who are the people that run the cooperative, who are the tasters, who is the mill manager and all this. And we make that available to our customers through a portal so that they can kind of, when they when they all share cupping notes through a program that we built uh, called Tastify, which is basically the cupping mm-hmm. app that connects everybody, um, the, taste, the taster in the north and the taster in the south are connected, but they also are connected as human beings. They remember, okay, this is, this is who is actually on the other side of that cupping report. Um, we have this annual, we bring everybody who buys from us into an annual gathering, as I mentioned, Let's Talk Coffee, where you know, four or 500 people will come, all of them enjoying their discrete supply chain. We don't have everybody sharing every information with every other roaster. It's all, we know that these are all different supply chains, but a roaster will sit down with their grower and at that same table, and of course, a sustainable harvest staff member, and at that same table, what's interesting is that I started to realize that we needed to think who else could add value to this table discussion of trying to help this business transaction be even more impactful. And so we would often have the social lenders, the um, Oiko Credit, the Root Capitals, the shared interest, these kinds of people who are loan companies that are interested in giving uh, low-cost loans to smallholder farmer groups, but they need to get paid back. And so by them seeing that the coffee deal was going to happen with a roaster, they knew that they could assign value to all of the contracts that we were doing. And that way we, when the coffee ships, then we're able to pay back the the loan on behalf of the growers and the whole model worked really well. We started to bring in government, regional government who had programs, NGOs who had programs in those communities, even academics who wanted to study what's the impact of a relationship coffee model versus a transactional model. And having all those people at a table in a place like Cartagena or Oaxaca, Mexico, or, you know, just we've had, we've had Let's Talk Coffees in Panama, Guatemala, Costa Rica. It's really fascinating to see how much more value you bring. And one of the reasons why I think it was, what was eye-opening for me was that it wasn't then just requiring the roaster to pay more money. Sometimes there was other ways we could bring value to the system by just opening up the circle to a more connectedness. And I think that's kind of at the core of what you'll see in the fifth wave is that um, we're all connected in ways, but the human connectedness is really what's going to win out. I can see here this real parallel between the Western world and, and, and its social media. You know, the barriers are now broken down between business and consumer. The genie's now out of the bottle and... There's so much information flowing that you just can't control all the connections. So you may as well just embrace this openness. I can absolutely see how powerful this model is now, and there must be more to come. What is the other magic that can come from a relationship coffee model? Well, one of the things during, um, during COVID, obviously, sales have, have shifted in terms of where people sell coffee, right? Retailer chains have, have um, pretty much closed up. Food service has gone way down. Universities are closed and that sort of thing. Airports and people are selling you know, a, a good bit more online, but certainly through grocery. But one of the things I found is that um, people maintained loyalty to their relationships. 
uh, I think that, and the human relationships is what I'm talking about. And I, I think that we saw that we were able to stay steady because uh, roasters knew where the, they knew these coffees in a deeper way. So, um, you know, the relationship coffee model, really the kinds of people that I, I have historically hired have been, you know, liberal arts um, trained people who are interested in, often would speak a second language, mostly Spanish. I think 85% of our companies bilingual. So they could have a conversation. They could in, in, engender a conversation between the grower leader and the CEO of a coffee company or the, the green buyer of a coffee company. And, and generally, I found that we could teach them to become logistics experts, queue graders, queue processing instructors. Like we've had lots and lots of um, incredible staff that have learned this, the, the coffee skills, but it's these people skills that I think um, in the trading world have been overlooked uh, because people might have seen trading more as um, transactional, whether it's understanding the market and being able to, to handle the futures market and things like that, or just flipping containers and coffees. Um, I, didn't, I didn't ever work for another importing company, so I didn't know a different model to try. And so the way I built the relationship model and transparency, traceability, um, a focus on on technology was something that was just at my core. I wanted to sort of see how could I apply these these tools to this particular commodity, and um, and I think I was pretty lucky that way because with every hard knock lesson, and we all know this from running businesses, it wasn't the times that I was successful that I really honed in what the relationship coffee model was. It was when I really, you know, hit a wall or did something very wrong. Um, and one example I could give was on transparency. I was sort of transparent when I first started out. Like I would thought I was being transparent. And um, in one case, a, a, a customer of mine went down to a, a coffee growing com country and, and found out that I was making not um, 10 cents a pound, which was sort of seen as the standard price per pound of a trader, but I was making 30 cents. And at that time it was really, you know, they just said, you're just, this is terrible. And I thought, I need to just be honest with everybody what it's going to cost me to bring in a coffee. Now, since that time, because our volumes increased, we don't have to charge as much as we did back then. But it was a really interesting question because being sort of transparent, but then seeing the roasters go down and visit the growers directly, I realized it all had to be on the table. And that's that's when I just started to say, here's what my margin's going to be to both sides. And this is what will deliver to you in value. And it'll be far beyond what a regular trading company does because we're going to invest very heavily in your training and education as growers. And so an example of that, Jeff, is um, we have a very, um, the Let's Talk Coffee has always had training components to it where we teach people price risk management. These people would be leaders of co-ops, price risk management. We've um, help certify over 250 Q graders around the world. Um, I think there's, um, we, we teach people about the marketplaces that they sell into. We explain first through fifth wave in terms of just how brands are positioned, who they're selling to, what they might be looking for, what's the customer persona. So when we, and we take groups of farmers all around, um, 
you know, on trips to New York, to San Francisco, to Switzerland, and we and we take next gen groups, younger younger members of the co-op who are going to be the next generation of leaders, and we do all of that because as they get those training moments and they have those relationships built, then they go back to their village and region and say, no, we're selling into X Roaster. This is how they see the market. This is why the Q score needs to be this. And they just get more involved. And that's that commitment to excellence that you've been talking about in the fifth wave. It happens through education, training, builds loyalty, builds excellence. Education, training, builds loyalty, builds excellence. What a way to summarize it. Now, I want to get to technology. You have a customer portal that has a richness of information. I was wondering if you could describe the platform and, and what it actually means for transparency on both sides of the coffee equation. The same way that we never really had a, an experience doing importing and trading the typical way or the traditional way, we also didn't buy an off-the-shelf system to keep track of our coffees. So while early on I was using Excel to sort of keep track of all the coffees that we were buying and where the containers were and all that information, in 2002, I had two members. Uh, it was the first year that I started my overseas offices, and it was Mexico. And one of the employees that I hired, who's still with me, Oscar Magro, was our as an information technology uh, expert, and he was also a coffee taster, which is a pretty rare combination. And he and I both had this vision of creating a cloud-based portal. Now, remember, this is 20 years ago, a cloud-based portal that would keep every single container and cupping score and farmer information and the certification data all in a, in a system. And so he built that out from scratch right, um, using PHP, and then I think it's gone to other computer languages. And that is the relationship coffee portal. And what that allows then is for us to see, um, you know, all of the beans that have ever gone through since 2002 through our, through our doors and our um, every cupping score. And, and it builds, uh, what we realized is that we needed to give our customers access to all the information that, that they'd had working with us so they could look at, um, at their history, at what their trends were. We could even show them on a Tastify wheel, a fingerprint of what kind of coffees they they typically source, and um, because it would show them exactly what they've been buying over the years, and it would crunch that data into showing them, here's what you're looking for in a Guatemalan coffee. So if a particular supplier wasn't able to deliver, maybe because of a climate change problem or some other problem, we could show them, here are eight or more choices, some in Guatemala, some maybe in other parts of the world that have the same flavor profile as what you're looking for. So that that portal um, has both a, a, a person, like it's about the people there. You can see who you're buying from. It has the transactional data, which is pretty typical, um, you know, for people to have. A, if you looked at your Amazon, you know, account, you can sort of see your transactional history. So it's along those lines. But But I think what makes it really different is that it allows you to see a lot of the environmental, the impact metrics, um, the shade level. Um, it just allows you to understand so much more about who you're buying from. And of course, all the 
ability to do your own delivery orders and release the coffee from the warehouse and, and all the kinds of things for those people who are in different time zones um, from Portland may want to do. And so that uh, Relationship Coffee Portal is one of our crowning achievements. And people say, wow, how much did it cost? And I say, well, it only took 20 years. And every year the team works on what's not working in the portal. And, uh, and we fix it and evolve it to meet the growing needs of the customers of tomorrow. Wow. So we've created that 20 years ago. That's a technological vision way ahead of its time. So what other tools and technologies do you think would help those farmers and businesses at Origin to have more effective business practices? Well, I think pushing down available technologies for keeping track of uh, the producer, the producer farm level, you know, almost having an app that allows the farmer to keep track of his own farm, to geolocate it, to, um, you know, have data about their farm is is something that's actively happening. We're working on with um, with different groups to to get this in place. There's a need on the roaster side, obviously, to know sort of blockchain like, right? Who made up the container, and and people are pushing towards that. But probably what might separate sustainable harvest and our work with uh, groups like the Committee on Sustainable Agriculture, COSA, which does a lot of good work in this, is the idea of the democratization of data. So it's typical for us up in the north to say, if you want to sell to me, get me all this information, you check a box, you can sell me coffee. But some of that data, in fact, a lot of that data may be very useful for that farmer to know how's his crop doing vis-a-vis -vis other people, um, what, you know, just performance data that is easy to um, is easy to share if if it's in your business plan, right? If you think we want to strengthen the supply side as well as serve our customer side, then you get into those kinds of conversations. And I think the democratization of data is going to be a huge lift in the fifth wave for farmers to know um, how they how their coffee is growing and how they improve it and. And let me give you one other digital tool that we actually built and it won the Especially uh, Coffee Award for Best New Product uh, in about five years ago, Tastify, which is um, Tastify was this cupping app that would allow us to um, basically use the Q grading system, but put it on an iPad or a phone or a computer. And there are over a thousand users of the of the program and people keep their cupping um, information so they can share it with others very easily, but it creates a, a fingerprint of the flavor. So you get this flavor wheel that, that shows you exactly what your cupping team is having. We built this initially because we wanted to make sure that our origin offices who were cupping the coffee, as well as the co-op who was shipping us the coffee as a, as a pre-shipment sample, and our team in Portland could all be connected. And now more of our roasters are also using the tool. So there can be just a four-way connection on, is the shipment that's going to happen with this coffee, are they sending the right coffee? And that makes everybody accountable, right? Because you're seeing the, the coffee as it scores. It doesn't come up necessarily anymore where people say, oh, I'm not getting enough Mandarin or, you know, some of those things that the, a coffee would get rejected. We, we just get people to understand the risks and rewards of being connected and Tastify's um, a really exciting tool for us to use. And we just thought we'd make it available to, 
to others and our suppliers all get it as part of doing business with us and our customers too. It almost sounds like a social media platform in a way. When you think people can share information so readily, it becomes valuable to all parties. Now, there's been a really big trend towards B Corps recently. I'd love to know how and why you became one of the early B Corps in the world. Well, it was early on. We were the first coffee B Corp. And um, one of the founders, um, Bart uh, Houlihan, came, was in Portland uh, giving a talk at a, at a hotel. And I had been interested in changing my articles of incorporation as a corporation into something that said I valued more than just shareholder primacy, you know, where it, as Milton Friedman said 50 years ago, the purpose of business is to maximize the return for the shareholder. And I thought I needed a different kind of model to explain that I was going to spend at that point a third of my income generated on farmer training. And I wanted to get credit for that in a way. And I noticed that a lot of uh, people in companies that were corporations felt compelled to maximize product profits um, almost by law, I think is how people saw it, that you couldn't necessarily pay farmers more, even if you knew it was the right thing to do, if there was some other product that um, was cheaper. And, and so I think it really, I saw that as handcuffing people. So this idea that, you know, B Corp brought two things to the market. One, it said, you're going to change your bylaws to let everybody who may invest in you or who may buy your company know that you believe in stakeholder value, which are, it's the environment, it's customers, it's the community, it's um, others than just the shareholders. And, and Sustainable Harvest is a family-owned business. So I was able to to make that change pretty easily. And then the second part about B Corp that Bart was uh, espousing was that you would take this test that would um, kind of push the greenwashing out of uh, all the companies that were calling themselves um, ethical and sustainable, and you would be scored. And it's a very rigorous test on all aspects of how you treat your employees, how you manage your energy levels uh, in terms of, you know, the, where you buy your energy and your footprint, your environmental footprint, and um, who you source from, how much diversity you're pushing in real ways, uh, maternity versus paternity policies, you know, do they exist? And what, what happened with B Corp with companies like myself, and I've heard this from many, many others, is that as you get to seeing, okay, I get this many points and you want to get above 80 points to be able to be certified as a B Corp and it's a 200 point scale, but the average scores don't go really above 150 or so because um, it's it's a pretty hard um, scale. But as you get close to 80, people start thinking, hmm, I'm going to change my employee handbook to add this. And so you start to see this improvement in how people run businesses in terms of um, stakeholder value. So it may improve the, the situation for the employees. It uh, generally usually does some great things in terms of um, increasing the benefits that, um, that are probably appropriate for companies to have. But sometimes you may not, as a small business owner, you may not know all these things because there's no real playbook. So B Corp adds this playbook about running an ethical business that has been you know, widely successful. And there are a lot of, I think there's more than 80 B Corps from the coffee world now. And uh, it was it was really something that I was so glad that an entity uh, like, like B Corp came onto the scene to sort of provide more rigor. I've always been a fan of third-party verification of claims because I just feel like that at least creates a level playing field. And um, 
even though certifications can be a hassle and they're not always perfect and they don't always deliver as much impact as we'd like, I do think it's important for us to always make sure that we're living up to some claims that maybe an outside group can can verify. And so becoming a B Corp was something we we did. And when Oregon allowed us to become a benefit corporation, uh, which is a, a, a structure that uh, I think 30 or so states have, we did that as well. So we always, we've always tried to sort of stay in front of these things to, to build the movement. As I understand it, there's a lot of documentation required and processes to be put in place. So what are the other benefits that stem from B Corp certification? Well, I think I think it does help you run your business more effectively because if you go to the B Corp um, annual gathering and you and if you stay you know connected to like any association connected to what they what they're sharing with you in terms of best practices, you can really keep your business in in line with what the important trends are in sustainable business practices. I think sometimes people join B Corp because they think they're going to just get this open portfolio of new customers. And while we do support other B Corp, and I think people generally try to do that, it's not it's not like um, a secret handshake where you get a, a necessarily more business. People still, you know, continue with the relationships they have, but you may start to um, be sort of accepted into um, into a business negotiation a little bit ha- faster because they realize, oh, they've been vetted. And, you know, we we work with another B Corp that's uh, pretty famous is Ben and Jerry's, you know, and I think they probably are appreciative that um, their coffee sourcing comes from um, uh, a B Corp. And because it just it's just one more level of assurance and risk mitigation that you're working with a good partner that's not going to... Um, hurt your brand. And I think everybody looks at that. So um, if you stay connected to the to what they're what they're sharing in terms of the education and training, uh, it can be very beneficial. Well, I don't often do this, but you've had such a long and meaningful career in coffee. I'd love for you to share with us now, you know, some of your proudest achievements so far. I'm I'm really proud of a couple of things. One, I'm I'm really proud of staying true to the same message for 25 years that um, I've been saying kind of the same thing since 1990 about what I thought the coffee chain should be. And it's incredibly gratifying to see now where the market has gone to sort of verify that initial intuition that people care about where their product comes from and who grows it. And they want to be part of something that makes the world a better place. And it took a lot. It wasn't it at the beginning. It wasn't like that. At the beginning, I had to basically explain what sustainable, you know, define sustainable. Nobody knew what I was saying. What, what does that mean, sustainable? Why, why does that matter for coffee? Now, I can't go to many websites that don't look very similar to the ones that we, you know, that what we started. And that's kind of a that's a win on a. Uh, you know, for a company to to see um, to see that that's that's become mainstream and accepted and all that. I think the second thing I would say I'm going to give you three. So the first one is that it's become mainstream. The second thing I would sort of think about the Sustainable Harvest alumni. <laughs> I mean, uh, 
Rick Reinhardt once said that sustainable harvest is the best, um, you know, practice area for people who are not in coffee to get trained really well and then go off and do incredible things. And, you know, there are hundreds of employees that are working at really great companies who are making a huge difference. And um, as a founder and CEO, I kind of really am pleased to, to see uh, I, I love to see them at the shows and I love to see where they've gone. And, um, you know, and I love some, there are many on my team who have been with me for 25 years as well. So it's not, um, it's not a churn thing, but it's just nice. Um, if I had extra money that we earned, I usually invested it in people and doing things because I felt like the coffee industry needed great minds to, to, to go forth and, and share those, those concepts. So that's the second thing I'm really happy about. And I guess the third one is that going back to that moment of what the guy in Mexico needed, that farmer, there are so many examples where I feel like I've been able to connect people into a world that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. You know, I've been very blessed. I, uh, I'm from a middle-class family in Colorado. My dad was a college professor. Um, I could walk into corporate America meetings and people, you know, wouldn't, they would give me access. But being able to give agency um, to farmer leaders to be at those same places and then step back on my part so that they can lead um, both men and women. Um, the women coffee programs are really satisfying to see the leadership being developed um, and how we, how we help empower empower that. I don't know if it's empowering as much as you're just unlocking the potential that's already there by simply, you know, using whatever I can do to make sure that those farmers and their perspective are at the table. And when we do that in places in Europe and the U.S. or at a Let's Talk Coffee, I look around and think, yeah, that's a life well lived. And what's next for Sustainable Harvest? It's always a hard question to know because um, there's so much more work that we have to do just to achieve the tenants of the fifth fifth wave, right? We have so much more farmer training to do. We have more customers to bring on board. We have to figure out how to reach the consumers um, and help our help the roasters reach the consumers. But I guess I hope that Sustainable Harvest continues to be a model in coffee that reaches other industries. We've had a Let's Talk Cocoa. We are not involved in cocoa, but we've we've done some events for that industry so they could see the coffee model um, as it works at scale. And um, I think that that's, I think that as people understand who grows their product and they feel connected, if we can go full circle, that's what the future of sustainable, we're just gonna continue to try to bring that circle together to where consumers and growers are, are really just one click away from understanding each other. Well, well, that's been a wonderful conversation and a true pleasure. I can't thank you enough for your time today, David. You know, this industry definitely needs those great minds and great people that are unlocking the potential of all the humanity across the coffee space. You know, you're a true leader and someone who's gained so much respect across the world of coffee. So thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Jeff, for the opportunity. So what have we learned in this episode? Well, the fifth wave is about creating the brand systems and the level of execution to meet the high expectations of today's connected, tech-savvy millennial consumers. And yes, 
so there is great relevance to this framework to coffee at origin. Fifth wave is not a destination, but a journey. It's the outcome that you aspire to achieve while the goalposts keep moving. You may never really get to your destination, but working hard and smart to try and get to that better place for all is where all the magic is created. We also learned of the importance of trust in commercial partnerships in coffee, about the importance of two-way communication and training, and that relationship coffee, with its open and transparent systems, provide a potential solution to the long-standing problem within the coffee industry. The critical need to generate and maintain a sustainable living for all coffee farmers at origin. Well, that's it for today's episode. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please get in touch and let us know what topics are important to you so we can make this podcast more relevant to you and your business. You can follow the link in the show notes to worldcoffeeportal.com slash fifth wave. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fifth Wave podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Brister. Theme music is Coffee Cold, written by Galt McDermott and interpreted by Matt Ken for the Coffee Music Project. Have a great week, and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated.